0: Amen. Take your copy of God's word and open it with me now to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. John, chapter 9, will start in verse 1. While you're turning there, there's a man who lives in Montreal, Canada, named Pierre Paul Thomas. For the first 68 years of his life, Mr. Thomas was completely blind. 10 years ago, however, something happened. Mr. Thomas fell down a flight of stairs, breaking numerous bones in his face, including both of his eye sockets. It took numerous surgeries for him to heal adequately, before one of those surgeries he was meeting with the doctor and the doctor just casually asked the question well so Mr. Thomas while I'm in there doing the surgery do you want me to fix your side as well well of course he did not understand the doctor proceeded to explain to him that his blindness was caused by a condition called congenital nystagmus and in his case It was completely curable. And for all of these years, Mr. Thomas was blind, but he was unnecessarily blind. All of this time, there was a cure for his blindness. He just didn't know about it. Well, according to the Word of God, man in his natural state is, guess what? Spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4 says the devil has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. 1 John 2 says darkness has blinded their eyes. Ephesians 4 says their understanding is darkened because of the blindness of their eyes hearts. You put all of this together, and part of us having this sin nature that we are born with is that we cannot see, we cannot understand even the most basic spiritual truths unless God enables us. We are spiritually blind, but it turns out, just like Mr. Thomas There is a cure for this blindness. Man is blind, but he is unnecessarily blind. In our passage this morning, we're going to see that Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth. All of his life was spent in darkness. It's not an accident that this miracle takes place right here at this point in the Gospel of John. At the end of John chapter 8 that we studied last Sunday, Jesus hid himself from the Pharisees who refused to see. At the beginning of John chapter 9, which we're studying this morning, Jesus revealed himself to a man who was blind, but he was willing to see. Two things happen to this man in John chapter 9. He was healed physically. That's the part of the story we're going to focus on this morning. But he was also saved spiritually. That's the part of the story we will look at next week. But we're going to see that one was a picture of the other. What we have here is not just a story of something that actually took place It is a picture of how God cures spiritual blindness. And there are three parts of this story that I want us to notice as we study it this morning. First of all, I want you to notice a faulty assumption. A faulty assumption. Look at verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? As they're leaving the temple, they encountered a man who had never seen a rainbow, he'd never seen a sunrise, he had never seen his mother's smiling face, and I want you to notice the complete difference in the way Jesus saw this man and how his disciples saw him. When the Bible says in verse 1 that Jesus saw a man blind from birth, that word, To see means to gaze upon. That means Jesus looked intently upon him. This is more than just a glance. Jesus saw him like no one had ever seen him before. Jesus saw him with eyes of compassion. Now the disciples, on the other hand, what did they see when they looked at him? They saw a man who was some kind of weird lab experiment. They looked at him and saw an opportunity to have an argument as to why he was blind to begin with. And let me pause right here and say it's very easy for us to fall into this trap. It's very easy if we're not careful to be like these disciples when we see someone who is hurting, when we see someone who is suffering, and we see them as an object of debate rather than an object of compassion. By the way, which do you see when you see that man or that woman who is broken? These disciples were more interested in arguing about him than they were actually helping him. But notice the question that they asked Jesus. Notice the questions they did not ask Jesus. They did not ask Jesus, Oh, Jesus, why was this man born blind? That would have been one question. Nor did they ask him, Jesus, did he do something wrong? Is this the result of somebody's sin? No. Notice how they worded their question. They simply asked, who sinned? In other words, was it him? Was it his parents? They just assumed that he or somebody had to have done something wrong for him to be born in that condition. They had in those days this belief, now this is going to sound kind of crazy to us, but they actually had this belief, this doctrine of prenatal sin. They actually believed that it was possible for a baby inside of the mother's womb to somehow, some way, sin. Not sure exactly how that worked, but they believed that a baby might sin while still inside the mother's womb. And if that baby were born with a birth defect, well, maybe that was God punishing them for the sin they committed before they were born. Now, that is absolutely ridiculous. Nowhere does the Bible teach that, but isn't it interesting? Even Jesus' own disciples in John chapter 9, they at the very least were flirting with this doctrine. They assumed that somebody must have done something wrong, maybe even the man who was born blind. This reminds us of the story of Job, doesn't it? How he lost everything, and he lost his possessions and he lost his children, and he lost his health. His own wife told him he ought to just curse God and die. And then when finally his friends showed up, what did they say to him? What did you do? You must have done something terrible, Job, for God to allow all of this bad stuff to happen to you. It's the same faulty assumption that suffering Must be the direct result of personal sin a Lot of people fall into the same line of thinking today Looking to blame somebody and if they run out of people to blame for suffering. Well, they'll just blame God. I have heard people say God I did all the right things I went to church. I gave money I sang the songs. I prayed the prayers. I was faithful to my wife. I paid my taxes. God, why did you allow blank to happen? Is this how you repay me for my faithfulness? And there is this assumption that God must have done something wrong because God is supposed to always bless good behavior with blessings. Let's be honest. In this sin-stricken world we live in that is not always the case and we see people who are relatively good who suffer and we see people who are absolutely evil who don't at least not yet there have been many polls over the years maybe you have heard of them many polls in which people are asked the question If you could ask God one question, what question would that be? And you know every single time someone does that poll, the number one response is always the same. Everyone says, well, I would ask God, why do you allow suffering in this world? Well, guess what? That was the question behind the question in verse 2, wasn't it? That's the question behind the question. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 3. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, when Jesus said he did not sin, his parents did not sin, Jesus was not claiming that they were not sinners, He was saying that none of them committed some personal sin that was the direct cause of that man's blindness. And think about what Jesus could have said in that moment. Jesus could have given the disciples exactly what they wanted. He could have gone into this long sermon about Suffering and how, in a sin cursed world, we live in a world in which there's all kinds of infirmities and viruses and bacteria, Jesus could have explained the different kinds of suffering in the Word of God and how some suffering is the result of personal sin and other suffering is not the result of personal sin. Jesus could have given them this big, long lecture about why we live in a world with earthquakes and hurricanes, why we live in a world in which some babies are born blind, but that's not what Jesus did. What did he do? He told them two things. No one sinned. God has a plan. By the way, aren't you glad to know that God has a plan for our pain? I'm so glad to know that God has a plan for the pain that comes into my life. And of the time, not always, but 90% of the time when we're suffering and we don't understand what's going on, this is what we need to hear. We need to hear, number one, it's not your fault. And number two, God is working. There's not a single hardship. There's not a single difficulty. There's not a single disability or loss that God will not use for his glory in his time. God will take every loss and turn it into gain on behalf of his people. Now, we may not see it. We may not understand it. But God will do it. And according to Jesus, in verse 3, God actually allowed this man to be born blind so that one day God's power would be displayed. God allowed this man to be born blind because he knew that the day would come when he would be sitting in that very spot when Jesus passed by and when Jesus healed him. On that day, the power and the glory of God would be manifested in his life. And it would be then he would finally see that everything that happened and everything he endured was for that purpose. And yes, God had a plan. But let me ask you, do you think this man could have understood any of that during those decades of blindness before he met Jesus? Absolutely not. None of it made sense. And yet, God had a plan. God Was working. That's what makes this assumption in verse 2 so faulty, and that's why it's also so dangerous. So we see a faulty assumption, but then as we read further, we see God's gracious provision. Look at verse 4 I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let me remind you as you read this Jesus has six months until his appointment with the cross. Six months. During those six months, there are villages he still has to visit. There are miracles he still needs to perform. There are sermons he still needs to preach. There are disciples that still need to be trained. Jesus knew he had a limited amount of time to do the things that the Father sent him to do during those six months. Now, if that was true for Jesus, that's true for us We have a limited number of trips around the sun to do what God has called us to do, and we don't have a moment to waste. But Jesus has this work that he says he must do because the night is coming. In other words, his earthly ministry is going to come to an end. And Jesus wants to show them, in verse 5, that he is the light of the world. We've seen this already several times in the Gospel of John, 26 times in the Gospel, I believe 20 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as light. So this theme, Jesus being light, Jesus as the light of the world, this is a prominent theme, especially in John's Gospel, that we see over and over again. So we need to ask the question again, what does this mean when we say Jesus is the light of the world? In fact, what does this mean on a practical level? Well, if you read all of the different verses in the New Testament, that talk about light in a spiritual sense, not literal light, but spiritual light, you know what you'll notice? You look at all of those verses, you will see that light refers to three things. Sometimes light refers to holiness. Sometimes light refers to truth. Sometimes that word light refers to life. And so, Jesus, as the light of the world, when he came, he brought in himself holiness, truth, and life. As the light of the world, Jesus was holy without sin, and therefore he is able to reconcile sinners to a holy God. Jesus said of himself, I am the truth. In Jesus, we discover Who is God? And we discover the truth of who we are and what we need. Jesus brought life. He brings us eternal life. He brings us abundant life because Jesus is these things. And He brought us all of these things in Himself. In this sense, He is the light of the world. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. He reminds the disciples in verse 5 that he is the light of the world, and he does that right before healing this blind man and making it possible for him to see light for the very first time. You see how all of this ties together? Jesus is going to heal the man born blind in order to prove that his claim to be the light of the world is true. And one of those works that Jesus came to do when he said in verse 4, I must do the works my Father has sent me to do. One of those works that he had to do was the healing of the blind because it was understood at that time that the Messiah, when he came, he would do certain things. One of them would be to heal the blind. In fact, this was prophesied. We look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse seven. It says one day God is gonna send this Messiah to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from prison those who sit in darkness from the prison house. In Isaiah 35, verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And so again and again the Scripture said one day God is going to send a Messiah, and when he comes, you will know he is the Messiah, in part because he will give sight to the blind. And therefore, this was a big part of Jesus' ministry. Did you know that healing the blind was the one physical miracle Jesus performed more than any other miracle? Five different times, five separate occasions in the Gospels, it tells us the story of Jesus giving sight to the blind. But this story in John chapter 9, this is the only time he healed someone who was blind from birth. You know why that was so important? It was important because all of those other blind people that Jesus healed, they were born with sight. They started off seeing, but then something happened. They got sick. They lost their sight. And so you know what a skeptic might say. A skeptic might come along and say, well, you know, those other blind people Jesus healed, they weren't completely blind. They weren't always blind. That doesn't count. Maybe he's not really the Messiah after all. Do you see why it was necessary that there be someone whose blindness could not be questioned? It was necessary that there would be someone who was well-known by everyone to have been blind from birth, so that when Jesus healed him, everyone would know that the prophecies had been fulfilled and Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And that is why this was one of those works in verse 4 that Jesus said he had to perform while it was still day before his earthly ministry came to a close. And I want you to notice how Jesus performed this miracle. Look at verse 6. When he had said these things, notice there's a connection between what Jesus just said and what he is about to do healing this blind man. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Remember I told you that Jesus healed the blind on five different occasions? Did you know that he did it differently every single time? God does not always work in the same way in our lives. He doesn't always do the exact same thing that he did the last time. And so this time, Jesus did something very interesting. He spat on the ground, made mud, made clay out of the dirt with his spit? I don't know how many doctors and how many nurses we have here this morning, but does this sound very hygienic to you? Uh, is this something they teach in nursing school or med school? I don't think so. And not to get into too much detail, but man, you've got to use a lot of spit to make enough mud to cover two eyeballs. You think, well, why did Jesus do it this way? Maybe he did it this way in order to teach everyone that the light of the world had come in human flesh made of clay. Maybe Jesus did it this way to intentionally cause some irritation in his eyes to bring attention to the man's problems. You ever had something get stuck in your eye and, oh, you just couldn't get it out fast enough because it just bothered you so much. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit works in our lives in that way, doesn't he? Sometimes he gives us that holy irritation so that we'll know that something is wrong, to call attention to it so that we will repent. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing here. But whatever the reason, we know he didn't have to do it this way. He could have just touched the man. He could have just spoken it. In fact, I believe Jesus could have just willed it, and he would have been healed. But that's not what Jesus did. He spat in the dirt. He put clay in his eyes, and notice what Jesus told him to do in verse 7. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Can I just pause my sermon for just a moment and point something out that is not technically part of the sermon, but it's just so cool I have to talk about it? Anybody want to hear something super cool? Take a look at verse 7. Did you know that verse was in the news this week? Anybody see the headline? Anybody? Okay, some, some did. Some of you did. This, news, or this, this verse was in the news this past week. Let me just show you a, a headline that I, I screen captured on my cell phone. Steps descending into 2,000-year-old biblical site where Jesus healed a blind man unearthed by archaeologist. This past week, archaeologists announced that they unearthed and they discovered the steps leading down into the pool of Siloam, the very steps that this blind man had to walk down in verse 7 in order to be healed. And they made this discovery and they released this headline. This is from three days ago. How cool is that? Now, we're not surprised because we believe that every detail of every verse of the word of God is true, but it is kind of fun when the world accidentally stumbles upon that fact every now and then, isn't it? Well, back to our story. Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam. This was one of the main landmarks in Jerusalem. No doubt this blind man had been there numerous times. I imagine he had memorized exactly how many steps and how many turns in order to get there. And Jesus commanded him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why? Because his body needed to be cleansed from dirt? No. Because, as we will see in the rest of the chapter, his heart needed to be cleansed of sin. That's the reason why. And this is why John emphasizes this one particular detail in verse 7. He wants the reader to know that this pool, Siloam, means sent. Why is that important? Because Jesus just said in verse 4, I must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus was sent 50 times in the Gospels. Jesus referred to himself as having been sent as the Son of God, born of a virgin. He was sent. He said, I was sent to seek and to save the lost. And this is why John emphasizes the meaning of the name of the pool. Jesus is the one who was sent. He had to wash himself in the pool which was called sent. Can you see? This pool is a picture of Jesus. That's what John wants us to know. And when he washed in the pool of Siloam, that was a picture of the sinner who was washed, not in water, but in the blood of the Lamb. And so we see in this a beautiful picture, beautiful imagery of God's gracious provision in providing his only begotten son who died for us so that we could be washed, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be saved. We see God's gracious provision, but we also see in this passage an obedient response. Very briefly, the end of verse 7, so he went and washed and came back seeing. At this point in the story, it's pretty obvious that the healing of the blind man is a picture of how God saves the sinner. He was physically blind. The Bible teaches that we, apart from Christ, are spiritually blind. He did not seek or call out to Jesus. We did not seek or call out to Jesus. He had to take the initiative to save us. He did not contribute anything to his healing. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. The blind man had to obey Jesus' command to bathe in the pool of Siloam. Likewise, we must obey God's command to believe the gospel. He had to exercise faith. We must exercise faith in Christ. There must be faith if this man had decided to go wash in some other pool he would have remained blind if this man had went away and said well who was this crazy man who just put mud in my eyes he would have remained blind he had to exercise faith and the evidence of that faith is that he obeyed the command of jesus You know, that blind man, when he woke up that morning, he had no idea that that was going to be the best day of his life. Can you just imagine all those years? He's been living in the dark. He's learned how to identify people by the sounds of their voices. But now he can put faces to those voices. And again, he had those steps memorized how to get home. And so his eyes are open, but he's counting one, two, three, four, turn right. And he's counting the steps because he didn't want to walk into somebody else's house. But he finally gets to what he's pretty sure is his home. And he walks in the front door and he sees his mom and his dad for the very first time and says, look, I can see. And to think all of this, listen, all of this was the second greatest miracle he experienced that day that wasn't even the greatest miracle that he experienced in that 24-hour period greatest miracle happens later as we will see in verse 38 when he met jesus and spoke those three beautiful powerful words and said lord i believe. And he experienced the greatest miracle of all when he, a man who had been spiritually dead, was saved and made alive in Christ. This is the cure for spiritual blindness. We acknowledge our sin. We believe in Jesus who died and who rose again on the third day, and we place our faith in Christ. you've never done that this morning, I would ask you, in whom will you place your faith today? Would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story and all that we learned from it and for the beautiful picture that we see in this of what you have done in our lives and what you are continuing to do in the lives of people today. We thank you that even though we were spiritually blind, even though we did not seek you or reach out to you, even though we didn't take the initiative, you loved us. You sent your only begotten son to come to us and to die for us so that simply by faith in him we might have sight and we might be saved. Not on the basis of any works that we have done, just by faith in jesus thank you oh god thank you for what you did to make that possible god i pray for those who might be hearing this message and right now they're like that blind man before he arrived at the pool of siloam maybe the mud is already in their eyes and they are feeling that holy irritation because they know that something is wrong they know something is amiss they know they're lost And they don't know where they'd spend eternity if they died right now. But God, how I pray that today they would be washed not in a pool like the pool of Siloam, but in the blood of the Lamb. That this would be their day in which they pray that same simple prayer as this blind man 2,000 years ago Lord, I believe that this would be that day that they confess Jesus as their Lord placing their faith in him believing that he died on the cross and rose again on the third day God would you work in hearts this morning if there's even one who needs to take that step that even now they would call out to you and be saved father would you speak to all of us now and show us how to apply all that we've read and all that we've learned to our lives and Father, would you help us to examine ourselves as your word tells us we should before we observe the Lord's Supper. Help us to see that sin we need to confess or that area of our lives that we need to surrender to you afresh and anew. We ask you have your way. We pray in Jesus' name.